Hi, everyone. This is Dave Newbert, Marketing Director for Eagle Eye Power Solutions, and welcome to our podcast, DC Power Hour, the show where we will discuss everything related to, you guessed it, critical DC power solutions. So charge up, power on, or do whatever it takes to get yourself excited for the episode of DC Power Hour. Welcome back to another episode of DC Power Hour. Today, we're going to be talking about another hot topic, renewables and other alternative power sources. So I'm excited to get right into this with George and Alan. I know they have a lot of really strong, really valid opinions about this topic. So let's get right into it in the battery blarney section. George and Alan, how are you guys doing today? I woke up, so it was a good start. All right. So let's hear from Alan. Um, Alan, let us... uh, why don't you start off the, the topic today talking about renewables and alternative power sources? What does that even mean? Boy, that's a, that's a very broad uh, aspect and a good question. All power sources basically are renewable. Some are more vastly or quickly renewable than others. When you think about it, oil and coal are renewables if you wait billions of years, but can't do that. So... Uh, I guess we're going to be talking about the renewables such as air, wind, sun, uh, hydro, anything but uh, basically fossil fuels. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of greenwash out there, as I call it, regarding renewables. And uh, I'll let George make a brief comment, and then I'll, I'll get on my soapbox. I was waiting for you to get on your soapbox to start with, so I could really start rebutting some of this <laughs> stuff. But... Um... I, I, I have my questions about renewables in the way it's being approached rather than the the fact that it is a potential source of uh, of power. As I say, I probably am a, a bigger believer than you are because I was involved in it many years ago. I had a very small size, but I was involved in it, and I, I know what we can achieve with it. So um, you tell me what it is that you really have against it. I don't really have a lot against it. Uh, you know, so obviously, George, you drank the Kool-Aid, but uh, there's, there's it was a lot really good as well. <laughs> there's a, a lot of near-truths, misinformation out there. You know, if you look at some reports, uh, oh, renewables are going to take over the whole generation of, a, of the power grid. That's not possible at the moment. I know you and I shared a, an article uh, last week about how, uh, I believe it was Rolls-Royce, uh, was entering into an agreement uh, to develop small uh, nuclear reactors for use for electric generation. And the driver of this was that people stood back and looked at, you know, can we really do what we're saying we can do with uh, wind and solar primarily? And the answer was no. Uh, we just cannot generate enough power, you know, to uh, fulfill the requirements of the developed and developing nations. I read a report about uh, uh, data centers. Data centers are huge power hogs. And uh, in my own country, or where I came from, uh, Ireland, uh, they reckon by, ni- by 2030, data centers are going to consume one-third of the total power generated. So we've got some problems. Uh, also, uh, you know, the, uh, another uh, pet subject of mine is electric vehicles pros and cons. You know, people, the governments and uh, various other 
interested parties keep pushing electric vehicles. Well, we've got to charge these darn things. So how are we going to do it? We can't generate enough power from renewables to do that even. So that's my big hang up. And uh, maybe George will disagree with me on that as well. No, I'm not going to totally disagree with you. I, I, I agree with you on the point that uh, the problem is all the people that want to claim that we become what they call carbon net, net neutral or carbon neutral by X number of years are, um, are going to have to accept just what we talked about, what you talked about. The only way we're going to get the level of base power we need to run this country is that we're going to have to go back to nuclear again, because that's so. And uh, the, 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 I think the thing that most people don't understand is that when you generate electricity, when you cause that electro reaction, the, the, when you start moving atoms around or charging atoms so you get uh, ions, charged ions to create your power, you um, that can be can be got rid of. It's got to be used. I think that's that's probably the biggest problem is that most people don't understand the science behind electricity or what it takes to keep this country in a the base load of this country satisfied. You know that the, the uh, uh, NERC have actually got sixty plus what we call balancing authorities all over the country, and their only purpose in life is to try and turn down and turn up generating plants so that they can maintain the load and not not uh, not overload the network either with excess power because it's got to go someplace. Well, that, that brings us up to uh, another topic which we'll probably discuss at length uh, later, and that's energy storage. You know, uh, you know, you can generate power when the sun shines and when the wind blows, but uh, if it can't be used at that time, or it's not required at that time, it has to be stored. So there's a whole other infrastructure we need to take into consideration, energy storage. But oh, yeah. Is- As you said, we'll talk about that a little bit later. But that's it's not that we can't produce electricity. It's not that we can't facilitate things. Actually, I just read an interesting article this morning about something that's uh, happened down in Baltimore that you, you may have not seen yet. But um, basically, it's a huge warehouse area, and they've put... I think it's about nine, 990 megawatts of power on the roof of it, all solar. And, I, you know, to me, that is, that's a valid use of space. If you've got a flat roof and it's not doing anything, then by all means put it and keep it out of sight as well, rather than taking up green fields filled with solar panels. But the only problem I can see is that just what you said about storage is that if you're going to start to utilize that properly, you're probably going to have to take over half that warehouse to put the battery in it to keep it to, to, to store the energy in it. Well, that's the other half of the equation, George. And I, I like the fact that you mentioned, uh, you know, the fact that uh, these solar panels were on a rooftop and therefore were not on on a greenfield. Another hang-up I've got is that they're building these huge uh, solar farms in places that covering acres and acres of uh, land. Uh, what's growing underneath the solar panels? There seems to be a conflict here. You know, if the environmentalists want all this solar power and wind power, and uh, what's that going? What's that actually doing to the environment? Uh, I was on an island off the coast of New Hampshire. Uh, actually, it's run by the University of New Hampshire, and they it was self-sufficient in power. 
they had one windmill and uh, just that one mill windmill was uh, killing so many birds that they had to take precautions. And one of the interesting things they did was that they painted one of the blades black and they found out that somehow or other the birds could see the, the black blades. So, uh, you know, there's two sides to the coin here. Uh, we had a conference in uh, Scotland recently and, you know, to do with the environment and carbon, carbon neutral prop things and everything else. I, I, I got a little bit of a laugh at the fact that uh, all these people were, you know, getting off their yachts and flying their private jets into, uh, into Scotland and then talking about energy conservation. So, you know, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of half-truths, a lot of truths, a lot of tongue-in-cheek stuff. But, you know, there's an old expression to follow the money. And there's a lot of money been thrown at this, I'm afraid. So uh, I'll let you talk for a minute, George. Well, actually, you bring up talk about people coming on their jets and their, uh, their your yacht. I think we had a perfect example of absolute hypocrisy last night. The president lit the Christmas tree at the Capitol. That Christmas tree was trucked the whole way from California to bring it here to the capital. What an absolute and utter disgusting waste of energy. Don't we have trees in Maryland we can cut down to build a, to have a capital Christmas tree? Anyway, at least New York bought theirs in Maryland and shipped okay. up to New York, well, which again, I think is a bit, well, maybe not because by the time you go upstate New York to find a decent sized tree, because they've cut so many of them down, probably, you know, Probably it was just as close to get it from Maryland. But to bring a tree from California while everybody's screaming about the waste of energy and everything else, absolutely, I just think it's absolutely crazy. You're talking about trees, George. Uh, you know, wood. wood. Wood is a renewable energy, a renewable source. Several of the power plants I visited in southern Virginia, which is a big lumber timber center, uh, they converted coal plants into wood plants. One plant I visited had a pile of wood, wood chippings that they had uh, stripped from the barks of trees that were going to be used for other places. Uh, they were piled high, I would say 20, 30 feet high, and they were using those to uh, fire the, the boilers in the, in the previously plants that were coal plants. So, but that, that is a renewable as well. But uh, you know, I've stopped. I'm not sending Christmas cards this year, George. You won't get a Christmas card because I'm trying to conserve on on paper. So, likewise, I'm not putting any Christmas lights out. You'd be glad to hear that. So, anyway, uh, without being you know really facetious, there is a place for renewable energy. I I do believe in it, uh, but you know, my, my hang up is maybe renewable, but uh, it's the quantity that I'm concerned about. My, my, my advice is to some of these countries, don't shut down your coal plants. Don't shut down your oil plants. You're going to need it. Germany's a basket case at the moment. UK's heading that way just because of uh, lack of power. We're a little bit sheltered here. We're a very large country, uh, a lot of uh, sources of renewable energy, a lot of sunshine in some parts of the country. Uh, even got a little bit here today, but uh, you know, Six months of the year, solar panels not going to work for me. And uh, as wind, you know, sometimes the wind blows, sometimes it doesn't. So there's a lot of 
a lot of questions here. I, I'm not anti-renewables. I'm anti the fact that the, there's a lot of uh, lot of greenwash going on. Yeah, I, I, I know what you mean. One of the, I suppose one of the reasons, is, as you alluded to earlier, I was involved in uh, wind solar many, many years ago. We, we did a study for, uh, in those days, it was BP Solar. Uh, some colleagues and I, we put a study together on the viability of uh, the combination of wind solar. And it's, it's, it's very interesting because you can, in fact, uh, if you... If you think about it, a lot of the wind is caused by higher temperatures and the change in temperature. You know, the, the, just that's part of climate. So uh, in lots of places in the world, if you have a combination of both wind and solar, you get a much more consistent uh, power source. You combine the two together. In fact, I, I remember going to one of the trade shows and there was this the company that were doing wind generators and they had this big graph behind them that showed this combination of wind and solar producing an almost constant load. And the young guy tried to explain it all to me until I pointed out that, by the way, I don't know where you got the graph from because I originally drew that for the BP study, that it was a MET station in Wales. But it can it can be done. So, yeah, that you you can use it, and it's, it's a valid way to use it. But... It, I come, keep coming back to this baseline power we need. And the only way we're going to do that is either by storing all that solar energy in some very large batteries that, unfortunately, um, batteries themselves wear out very fast. And we're then left with a different problem. How do we get rid of the waste material from batteries? You know, well, we have a big focus at the present moment that, that we don't want to do lead recycling. You know, we, we, we've got to get rid of lead. Lead is dangerous, and lead is dangerous, especially if it's in the water. We need to look at that. We've got to understand just everything that goes into this. And lithium's not the answer because we don't even know how to recycle that, and it's a limited quantity of material that's available in the world. There's, there's, just, there's just not a lot of common sense going on when this matter's discussed. That's the problem. It's not that it can't be done, it can't be used, you know, the other thing we you know, we have a shortage of water at the present moment in different parts of the country. What's going to happen though if I turn around and say, well, you know, there are a lot of big valleys up there that we could uh, put a dam across and flood for all the areas that get too much water? But what would happen then? That's not very environmentally friendly, George. But anyway, uh, you mentioned one thing that I'll hit upon, then we move on to the storage side of things. We talked about uh, wind being readily available in certain areas, and that, that's usually on the coast because of the heating effect on the water and land different times of the day. But there's one thing that happens, whether the water flows, whether the sun shines, whether the wind blows, uh, and that's tides. You know, tides are going to happen no matter what, as long as there's a moon up there. So... A lot of thought has been put into tidal uh, generation, and I'm a big believer in that because really it's, it's pretty environmentally friendly when you think about it. All you're doing is putting floats out there in the water. You're not killing fish uh, like you're killing birds. Uh, you're not roasting animals, but uh, it's already started big time in UK. You probably remember years and years ago, George, there was a 
plant, uh, the tidal plant at the Bristol Channel, in the Bristol Channel. So I think that's got a big future as well. And, uh, you know, that's happening 24 hours a day. You get a high tide and you get a low tide. So it happens. There's mm -hmm. no interruption. If there is an interruption, we're in big trouble. But anyway, so that, that's my thought on that. The other thing that irks me is that uh, all these companies coming up uh, with things, statements like, particularly with electric vehicles, statements like, uh, by, by 2030, uh, we'll be carbon neutral. By 2040, we'll be doing this, that, and the other. Well, I'm, I'm going to make a prediction now. Uh, by 2040, I'm going to stop drinking alcohol. So, uh, you know, that's as much sense as, as some of these other predictions in my mind. Uh, regrettably, at our age, you probably, that's a pretty good guess, you know, you're going to be uh, doing that. But uh, I, I, I take what you mean there. It's, it's um, th These predictions are, to be honest, crazy, because they, we just aren't going to be able to achieve that. I, I'll put this, I don't feel we're going to achieve it. So, guys, uh, I mean, I'm, I, I love this conversation and, and your perspectives because being on the other side of things, I hear the, the, the media and I hear the glasses really um, half full perspective most of the time. So hearing the other side of the, the coin is really valuable. So like Alan mentioned, and, and you guys I know are going to talk about energy storage, but that there's, there are, I know you guys have thoughts about what can we do? What kind of combination of sources can we put together? The title, the nuclear, you know, I, I mean, I, I think you guys have uh, definitely shown that there are, are many negatives to a lot of these things that we only see the positives. So, so where do we go from here? How can we sort of right the ship and kind of put the greenwashing aside and say, this is, this is a good alternative moving forward that we should look for? I think we need to, uh, I think we need to educate people and as to the alternatives, uh, you, you know, uh, David, I've, uh, expressed many times the, the need for micronuclear plants. We need to uh, educate people about those, uh, how safe they are. Uh, a lot of uh, people are putting, knowledgeable people are putting money into that at the moment. They are safe. You know, nuclear plants get a bad press, but uh, I, I I'd asked a question, how many people have been killed by nuclear accidents in North America? I can't think of one. So, uh, so I, th I think it's going to be a mixture of everything. Uh, we're going to have renewable energy, whether we like it or not. Uh, too many people are pushing it. As I said, follow the money. Uh, a lot of money to be made. A lot of subsidies. What happens when those subsidies run out, particularly with electric vehicles? But you've got to generate the power to charge those electric vehicles. You've got to generate the power to manufacture those batteries. A lot of power consumed by, in battery manufacturing. A lot of dirty stuff, a lot of nasty stuff, a lot of child labor. You got, you got to reach a balance somewhere. And the answer, in my opinion, is education. And it's not me, me just on my soapbox all the time, but uh, scholarly people coming up with reasonable facts. I haven't seen one article, I, I don't believe, that maps out and talks about uh, how we're going to do all this without some alternative form of generation whether that's oil, coal, or nuclear. I have not seen one article. Well, I, I, I'll add a little bit to that one there, Alan, is that the one source of energy that we do have is the one that is 
by far the most reviled, and that's coal. We have probably, what somebody said, 500 years worth of electricity still in the ground in the form of coal. And you can go to coal, some of the coal plants today, and they are as clean as anything in your generation. In fact, they, you know, but it costs money to do it. That's the problem. The electricity would cost more under those circumstances, but we could have it. We could have clean power, and it produces all sorts of other things as well at the same time. You know? You're exactly right, George. But, wow. you know, educate, go back to education. Last week I drove, uh, sorry, Monday I, I drove with my wife from Connecticut down to Maryland, and we drove through New Jersey, famous Cancer Alley, and there was this, uh, my wife happened to remark, power plant, I knew it was a power plant, she didn't. She said, oh, look at all that, look at all that smoke that's coming out of that plant. It wasn't smoke, it's steam. And you look around you at all the chemical plants that are, that are in that area, and, and refineries and everything else. A lot more pollution being generated, but they don't get any attention. So anyway, uh, back, to the, back to the education thing. Yeah, anyway, education is something, as you all realize, is something very dear to my heart at the present moment. But it's, it's hard work because people come in with preconceived ideas now. And uh, somehow, for some reason, scientific facts are no longer the driving force behind anything. That's probably my biggest complaint is you can have the absolute scientific explanation to something but if it doesn't suit a particular organization or a particular group's ideas, then it doesn't matter. Well, you know, we're, we're in a generation, uh, I'm not talking about your, your generation or my generation. George, uh, you know, I believe uh, even fire wasn't invented when I, when I was born. But uh, the, the fact that, uh, you know, the modern generation, and I probably can, can include you, David, and Andrew, and some of our other colleagues in that, they get their news from Google. They get their, their news from YouTube. They get their news online. They get their news from uh, some media outlets that have got a political agenda. You know, if we, we miss Walter Cronkite and people like that who you could actually believe. But uh, so, you know, you got to break through that barrier. Uh, I had an argument with one of my sons over the Thanksgiving holiday who was totally committed to electric vehicles and was not willing to listen to an argument as to the, you know, why you should not buy an electric vehicle. So anyway. Which so, one? Uh, Connor. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So uh, anyway, uh, we might want to start touching on batteries, George. You, you rightly identified the fact that people don't want lead-acid batteries. A lead-acid battery is 99% recyclable, as you know. If done properly, there is no danger. I've been working with batteries for 40 years, just as you have, George. I don't think uh, uh, I've been affected by the lead, although in, in the old days we didn't realize the, uh, some, of the, uh, some of the hazards. But uh, hopefully I've still got most of my faculties. So uh, it's pretty safe. But once again, uh, it's, lead's an old-fashioned thing. It's easy to point fingers at it. Just, just mention lead. Just mention sulfuric acid. You know, people say, Ugh. well, when you mention lithium or when you mention cobalt or anything like this, people don't think 
eh, they don't know what they don't know the history of it. They don't know how it's mined. They don't know where where the world uh, lithium supplies are. Uh, they're certainly not not in North America. So you know, if we look at energy independence, you mentioned a while back a company called BP Solar. Well, BP Solar, as you know, is about the the, the Solarex plant became BP Solar or the other way around. It's located about five miles from where I live. They've torn that plant down. They were manufacturing solar panels. There's not one solar panel that's made in North America at the moment. So just like the light bulbs that they power, there's not one light bulb made in North America. So, you know, we have another factor to take into consideration here. Last time or I checked, but a couple of years ago, there was not one turbine blade, uh, you know, wind turbine blade manufactured in North America. So we're, we're, we're like our, our drug supply and our chip supply. We've got to be very careful here as to where we source some of these things. So, and the same happening with lithium-based batteries. You know, we've, we've got a terrific industry in North America, lead-acid batteries manufacturing. We're, we're the world leaders probably. Well, maybe not. Germany's probably ahead of us. But uh, for the... Other batteries, I'm not so sure about zinc, uh, what the what supplies of zinc are. I think zinc batteries are very, very promising. They don't have all the nasty stuff associated with uh, lithium batteries. So we've got to look at that as well. It's not just the fact that you know, what other batteries can we use. So your comment on that, George. Well, before I talk about that part of it, I'll, I'll, let's go back to your uh, your questions about the uh, the problems with lead as it apparently affects the deterioration of our brains. Now, while you and I both believe that we are still fully compass mentis, there may be some people listening to these podcasts over the last six months are questioning that. Perhaps we have been exposed to too much lead. But uh, we'll wait and see. I just, uh, the fact you, you made a comment to me the other day was that uh, None of our colleagues have commented much on the podcast. I'm not sure whether it's they're not listening or they're just saying, oh, ignore those two, will you? It's one of the two. Anyway, coming back, let's come back to the, the whole subject of, of batteries. Yes, the whole the supply of materials for those batteries is a key part of it. And as you said, we can we can recycle lead. We can do it very well. Uh, and we don't, it doesn't need to be hazardous to people. Regrettably, the reason that we have hazardous problems with lead recycling is simply because, uh, shall we say, that good old profit goes ahead of safety in many cases, uh, whether we like it or not. So that, that's, a, that's a major problem we have. We've got to get that, you know, we can't stop building things because people won't make the process safe for our workers. We've got to solve that problem. That's a, but that's a totally separate issue. But yeah, you're right. The, what we're looking, we should be looking at are, are the batteries that there is a huge stock of the material available. And zinc is one of them there. There's very large stocks of zinc available in the world. Manganese is another one. Um, you know, uh, apparently there are areas of the ocean seabed are filled with manganese nodules that are very easily harvested and wouldn't do any harm to the environment. They're just sitting lying on the bottom as rocks. Uh, so you know, it's new. I, th I, I'm, I'm like you. I believe that new battery technologies will 
will be part of what we're going to be doing, and it will be an important part of making some of the recyclable stuff work. But are we heading in the right direction at the present moment? I'm not sure. I just, I don't think we're applying common sense. That's probably the problem. Well, follow the money, George. You know, there's it's, it's nothing glamorous and no money in uh, lead-acid batteries at the moment. But, you know, the fact that uh, you can recycle them 99%, you said that uh, with uh, some of the lithium chemistries, it's, uh, they're not recyclable. Well, there's a lot of money being poured into that as well. Into that as well, and I believe someday they will come up with some recycling. They're going to have to. Let's face it; they're going to have to. And you know, they they try to to use the fact that well, when an electric vehicle lithium battery is spent, it can be used for energy storage. Well, that's fine; it can. But uh, you know, they they realize that that wasn't good. Pull the wool over everybody's eyes for a long time. So they now they're looking at actually recycling these. But the fact is, if they recycle them, is the recycled material going to be good enough or going to be, are they going to be able to make new batteries for, from them as they do with lead acid batteries? So that's my hang up on that. But the other thing about energy storage uh, we have to look at is where we cite it. Is it safe? You can't store energy in Arizona and make it available in New York. It's very, you can, but it, you know, it's, it, takes, it takes a lot. You're going to have to store that energy where it's been used. And I think probably, much as I hate California, but uh, I think uh, you know, they're kind of leaders in this. They're actually storing the energy where it needs to be used. They have to because they haven't enough energy from the, they can't get enough power from the Hoover Dam. You can't get enough power from, because they've closed down all the coal plants. So they're driving a lot of the energy storage. Also, foreign, some foreign countries, especially Japan, which doesn't have a, a much of a, a uh, natural resources uh, to generate uh, power. You know, I'm talking about coal and oil. You know, you're going to have to be very careful in the type of batteries you use for energy storage. And where you where you cite the energy storage plants? Yeah, you, you are. I think if you you probably hit the nail on the head. We need to start thinking about things being much more local rather than huge plants that have got to. Because if you think about it, that in when you start to distribute power over long distances, the losses increase. So you are in fact generating power that is then in some cases, effectively being used to heat the air around about the high-voltage cables they're using, you know, because that's what happens. So you, you, we need to be thinking about how to be able to generate power locally or at least uh, balance power out locally rather than uh, try to do it from a remote distance. That's, that's just that's my, my thoughts on the process. We, we, how, how, how we've do you got spell? to rethink the whole thing. How do you spell nuclear reactors? Small micro nuclear plants. So. Yeah, just, just let, let, why don't I amplify that? As soon as I was, uh, I had this conversation with a colleague over in the UK about it a couple of weeks ago. He was the one that pointed me in this direction. Was that uh, those nuclear plants they're talking about are basically upgraded versions of the ones that Rolls Royce have been building for all the British nuclear submarines 
since the first one was launched. And you can work out how many years ago that was. And there never has been an incident with a nuclear reactor or a failure of a nuclear reactor on board any one of those submarines, whether it's just an attack submarine or whether it's one of the old missile ones. So that, you know, you're talking about a device that is 100% reliable. And this, the, what they're looking at now is simply an upgraded version of that design that is proven for years and years and years. And the idea there is exactly what we're talking about is to provide local sources of power to help balance loads out. That way we don't have to build huge networks of distribution to try and support it. Because one of the things that we should, people should realize is that those network power in those transmission lines that we crisscross the countryside are also very vulnerable to attack. You take out one transmission line and you kill a lot of people's power. That was a, you're, you're right, George. And uh, that was a good example of that was uh, the fact that uh, when the oil pipeline was taken out, but when we had the uh, major Northeast blackout, it, it was just a, I believe it started with one uh, transmission line or one substation up in uh, New York State or Canada, but it took out the whole of the Northeast. I'm a believer. Uh, I'm not a conspiracy person, but I believe that attack on the national grid is either imminent or it's very, very easy to do, not just by our enemies, but sunspot activity. Sunspot activity, uh, they can't forecast it closely enough, but the, the those that think that a, a massive uh, electromagnetic emission from the sun uh, could take out our national grid as well. So what do we do? Do we bury everything? Yeah, I'd like to get the contract for that. But uh, you know, when you say that everything needs to be local, boy, is that true. Okay, so let's say you guys have the government's backing and you have all the money you need and the resources to pursue uh, a logical, renewable, combined with other alternative energy sources and traditional energy sources, what, where would you put the emphasis? Where would you invest for the next 10 years in something that might help stabilize the, the power grid and take us into, I guess, the, the future? Nuclear? I mean, nuclear and cleaner coal plants, things like that? Is that what you're saying? Well, a couple of things we just we already mentioned probably is uh, wood. Let's take a, another look at that. Clean coal plants. Uh, George mentioned that uh, some of these, I've been to some coal plants, you wouldn't even know it was a coal plant. You know, everything, everything was clear. They have scrubbers. They, they clean up uh, everything. Uh, all, all that's emitted from these plants is... Uh, Esteem, but they people also look at the other end of the aspect, you know, mining the coal. Well, coal miners' job in North America is really easy when you compare to uh, a uh, lithium or cobalt miner in, in parts of Africa. But yes, I, I would. Problem with putting your money somewhere is that everybody I, every entity that I know of, and that includes, uh, FERC and NERC and everything else. There's a political agenda. You know, the people that run it have their political agendas. So how, how do you get over that? How do you over, get over that political barrier? 
you know, there's not a lot of independent think tanks in North America at the moment. They're all funded some way or the other. Politicians are funded one way or the other. Somebody came up the other day with a good remark in that, uh, you know, po- politicians should be like NASCAR drivers. They should wear their sponsors on their, uni- on their, on their suits. So we know where they're coming from. But uh, I, I get back to the fact, if we could have some independent education. I'll pick up on what he, we, we was talking about there is that the problem is that we, we, we live in a world today that we want a simple answer and that will cover everything. And that's not the way the world is. It never has been the way the world is. Everything in many ways is individual. And uh, it's going to be the same for achieving that level of energy reliability within the areas. That's I think that's what both Alan and I are coming back to all the time is we're going to be looking for how do we produce power within a specific area that will satisfy that area. One of the problems with, with power generation is that to make electricity worthwhile, you have to, uh, it has to be synchronized. And in the US, we have uh, four areas that uh, are independent. You know, the, the West Coast, the, the, the large part of the, the center, then part of the East Coast up into Canada and Texas are the four different areas. And within those areas, the generators are synchronized. But between the areas, in order to pass power back, they convert it to DC and then back to synchronize with the generating plant in the next area. Those are expensive, and we don't have that many of them. That's one of the challenges you have, is that a lot of the times those conversion points or those transit points between the areas are not in the uh, in the location where um, they can move, where power can be generated to move it to elsewhere. So that, I think that it's just this, this idea that everything has to be large in one place, you know, the not-in-my-backyard type of concept. And that's not going to be the way it's going to work. We're going to have to start thinking about local, getting it back to local so that we find find sources of power. As Alan said, one of the things that he was interested in, and I agree with him, how many uh, waterways do we have where it's tidal that we could be putting in tidal barriers there? You know, the, 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 the one thing about it is that in some cases, by putting a tidal barrier in there, we might even help limit the effects of hurricanes and uh, and the inrush of water as a result of it. And when they, I don't, none of you have ever been to the UK, but um, there's a huge tidal battery uh, downstream of London that was put in many, many years ago. And if we have bad storms, that gets, that gets raised effectively to stop the central London flooding. So, but that, that same device could also be used for generating power if we, t- if we used it correctly. George, regarding you had mentioned moving power, do you think a lot of, and what I've kind of heard out there is we really need a rebuild of our transmission system here in the United States. It's one of the largest investments we would really have to make because a lot of the power really is going to come from the Midwest, in my view. And it's going to be pushed out to the coast because there's not enough places on the coast to generate that power. So there would be, I think, a lot of power that would be generated in the Midwest region and then pushed out to both coasts. 
do you believe that that would be the case and that that's kind of a future we'd be looking at? Or do you really see it being that they're going to have to come up with alternative ways to generate power? And, and I do believe there will be nuclear and, and hydro and different things that the coast can utilize. But I really see that as being one thing that has to take place. I think my thing here with that, Andrew, is 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 the fact that yes, we need we do need to upgrade the uh, the distribution network. It is it just simply doesn't have the capacity to move the level of power we're trying to move on it. You know, we, we, when you consider all the problems they're having in California at the present moment with the fires, that uh, you know the utility out there is having to effectively cut power off to areas. Because the transmission lines are sagging, because of the amount of the heat that's been generated, transmitting the the basically trying to pass far too much power down those lines, and then if any one of them break, that starts the fire. Mm-hmm. And now that's that's one of the, well, especially with the wind storms, that's one of the biggest problems they're facing. I, I agree with you that that there is going to be a level of bulk power generated that has to be. That's what we keep talking about. This what we the generating power, what the utilities describe as base load. Base load is the power that's on all the time. It has to be there in order to keep everybody supported. Then you have the cyclic loads. You know, the, the, the power demand goes up from about, in this area, probably from about four o'clock in the morning as people start to get up and get ready to drive down to DC till about nine or 10. That's probably peak for some of the demand. And uh, what they need then is small generating plants locally. What the most of the uh, utilities refer to as peakers, and that 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 covers that load. But in at the present moment, almost all of those are uh, gas powered because mm-hmm. they uh, you know they come up to speed very fast, so they can turn them on and off reasonably well. Yeah, do you think that gas, natural gas, will be a, a great transitioning fuel? I, I know, really, I can tell you a lot of our clients are coal manufacturing and coal generation plants, So, but I do see that that industry is declining. There's a lot of them being decommissioned out of those generation plants, and a lot of them, all the new builds seem to be natural gas or some alternative. Do you see that being like one of the main long-standing fossil fuels that get us into kind of the transition and the renewables of the future? I, I, I think it's the only one we've got at the present moment that we can use, to be honest. It, um, and you can get gas plants relatively clean. The, 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 one of the advantages of gas is that it is easier to transport than anything else. Mm. And as we've discovered, we are finding gas in places where we never knew there were gas areas. With Pennsylvania, just uh, north of where Alan and I live, uh, they have got, you know, they're a big gas producer now. So, yeah, that makes sense to use that gas to be these peaker plants. And a lot of that's what a lot of the utilities are using it for. But um, I, I, I just struggle with the, uh, the fact that we're not using what I believe is common sense and, and stop trying to go to one extreme or the other. Oh, right. It, it can't be it's only this or it's only that. It's got to be a complete integration, in, in my view, where you're using solar, wind, hydro, some of the other technologies that you had talked about, even tidal wave type of uh, uh, energy sources. And then really, I know that the big stigma behind nuclear or around it, but I think that's one of the best sources of the future 
The, the big problem we have with nuclear, uh, Andrew, is the is the major accidents that have occurred. You know, with Three Mile Island just up the road from us here as well, but it's still good. You know, that plant's still working. Uh, every time I drive up to New Jersey, I drive through Harrisburg, look down, and I can see the this you know the steam coming off the generators down there in Three Mile Island. It's still working. So, um, you know, that, that, that's 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 part of it. But it's these. Again, it comes back to is if you make the plants smaller and more local, the level of risk drops. The problem is when you make everything huge, that any anything any incident that occurs at that location can disable and damage. As Alan said, they, when he was talking earlier, this whole uh, what happened when we lost the uh, oil pipeline because the uh, this computer system was. Hack, mm-hmm. you know, we got no oil to the northeast here. It was drastic, and simply because somebody got into a computer with a piece of code, that to me is frightening. You know that that this ability to do this is just crazy. All right, guys. Well, if you can take a, a few minutes here to to wrap things up and uh, kind of give us your final thoughts on on this topic, Alan, go for it. Just to summarize, we got to. Uh, We've got to do two or three things. One is we've got to educate. The other thing is we've got to come up, somebody has got to come up with a way forward plan. You know, how we're going to integrate renewables and uh, existing power sources, not just this pie in the sky of only using renewables. So we've got to do that. Uh, And we've got to show the public uh, that, you know, certain things are feasible. And uh, in my way, the micronuclear reactors combined with renewables uh, seems to be the solution. It's really hard for me to say this, but you know, I have to agree with Alan. I, you know, I'm almost lost for words that uh, he, he summed it up so well. I, I think the, the other, you know, I, I'll probably uh, get really ripped apart for this one, but there was work done many, many years ago in the UK on what they called a fast breeder reactor that in fact you were able to use the uh, you by making the material this other material radioactive as part of the process agreeing with alan is uh, is not part of my normal program just as a matter of principle but um no i i do have to agree with them that it's it's going to be i think what we we said is that there's there's nothing shouldn't be on the table to use it's how we use it, how we get the maximum out of it. As I said, I did that, we did with colleagues, I did that study way back for BP Solar at the time. And it was all about um, how could you use a combination of wind and solar. It wasn't designed for large-scale generation. It was actually more about providing cooling for medicines in remote villages. That was one of the things they were looking at as a way to keep drugs safe, vaccines and things like that. And we were able to prove that you could achieve the level of power required with a very small type of uh, power system. We had a combination of a a single solar panel and a 30-watt wind generator, and we were able to keep a cooler going for a large part of the world that would have enough drugs for for a small native village. So, you know, it can be done, but it takes a level of 
uh, focus to do it. And the problem with the present moment is that I just, the focus is only ever on how much money can we make from this. Otherwise, you have to have the government do it. And that doesn't always work either. So I think that's, that's the summary. It's, yes, we can achieve everything you want to achieve. It just has to be looked at in much more detail than it is at the present moment. All right. Thanks a lot, you guys. That was really insightful. Really appreciate it. And uh, we're going to talk to somebody next who's uh, from the sort of um, climate and environmental uh, policy side. So I think it'll be really interesting. But thanks, guys. It was a a really great discussion. And uh, we'll talk to you later. Hey, Jack. Thanks for joining us today on the podcast. Um, I know that you're currently work. Uh, working with Breakthrough Energy as the uh, manager of industrial decarbonation policy. Why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about that specific job that you're doing there? And then I'm really interested to hear about your past. As I, as I, when I first met you, you were with Duke Energy and doing some work there on policy that I'd love to jump into uh, here in a bit. Yeah, absolutely. And and thanks for having me on. So yeah, my name is uh, Jack Andreessen. I work for Breakthrough Energy and industrial decarbonization and, and building decarbonization. Fundamentally, that's looking at, uh, you know, in, in the, the race to uh, to net zero uh, emissions, the final sort of 20%, the tail of the emissions are, are long and they're relatively, you know, quote unquote, difficult to abate. Uh, these are things like steel manufacturing, cement, concrete, aluminum, things with high heat, things that can't necessarily be electrified. So at Breakthrough, we um, we work with Congress, we work with private sector, we work with other you know NGOs and think tanks to develop strategies and, and policy recommendations around uh, ways we think uh, we could you know decarbonize those various industries. For example, this would be something like green steel, trying to increase the production of hydrogen, which is a uh, a low to no emission way to make steel you know net zero. So yeah, I. Um, I've been with Breakthrough now for about the the last two months, and as you mentioned previously, I was with uh, with Duke Energy um, in the distributed generation uh, side of the company in a very esoteric and not well known but important part of the business called interconnection policy. Yeah, and, and I don't want to leave out too that uh, you had worked with the Climate Reality Project in there as well as a energy policy advisor, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right? Yep. Yeah. I, uh, I went from Duke and then had uh, seven months at, at Climate Reality where I was, uh, there was more of a general sort of advocacy and educational role at the Climate Reality Project. And that was uh, more of a global focus that focuses on education, on energy policy um, and decarbonization policy across the globe. So first, let me go back to the breakthrough. So what has it been like for you on as Coming from the inside of working with Congress, how intimate is your company with Congress and some of the, the folks over there? And how do you feel that has really been going over the past couple of years? Are they coming on to some of this, these policies that you guys are pushing forward, or is there still a, a lot of obstacles in your way there? Yeah, I would say both. I mean, the, the later, <clears throat> latest uh, major pieces of legislation, um, the, the BIF and, and hopefully now reconciliation, we've seen uh, a lot of very encouraging language, a very encouraging uh, laws being rules being written into place around decarbonization. Um, for instance, it's, it's a relatively small one, but there's this program called um, EPDs, which are, you know, essentially like uh, a way to uh, environmental product declarations. It's a way to, you know, assess and let everyone know the amount of embodied carbon that is in your product. 
um, whether that's steel or cement or et cetera, and, and that got $250 million worth of funding in this latest infrastructure package. And, and that's something that we were really pushing for. Um, but yeah, there's always obstacles. I mean, we, you know, so the, the way we engage is uh, we have a number of individuals on the staff that are, you know, previous Hill staffers, previous uh, DOE um, employees or otherwise have experience in, in DC. We have registered lobbyists that obviously go to um, on the Hill itself. And it's a, uh, it's a game of, of trying to find a compromise in which everyone can agree on, because obviously at the end of the day, whether you're a you know, Senator from my home state of Nebraska, or whether you're a Senator from let's say West Virginia, um, you have a particular set of issues that you're interested in and that your constituents are interested in. And you have to match those up with what all the various groups are, um, are advocating for. And so, it's um it's incredibly frustrating but also incredibly rewarding. Yeah, so with a lot of that that you're working on, is it is any of that that uh, breakthrough is doing involving um, the grid and and some of the backup power there and some of the infrastructure changes such as uh, the Build Back Better Act or anything with that are you guys involved in at this time? Yeah, absolutely. We actually just um, brought on a uh, power sector specialist named James Hewitt. Um, he is working largely, and Breakthrough is is very interested in grid level uh, policy, focusing primarily on transmission. You know, obviously, the deployment of renewables is happening at paces that we've never seen before. It, it is increasing every year, um, and truly, you know, one thing that could really unlock the potential across the country is um, an increase in transmission deployment. Um, and that's, you know, connecting great wind resources in Wyoming to load centers in Chicago or on the West Coast, wherever. And, and the key to be able to move those electrons is big, you know, high voltage uh, direct current lines. And so, yeah, uh, BE is, is absolutely advocating for not just, you know, physical infrastructure, building the lines and the poles as it were, but also, you know, funding for research um, and studies to be done on where best to put these lines, um, where's the most impact. So yeah, it's a it's a suite of policies that that BE is looking at for for um, for transmission and and the grid in general. I'm really happy you brought up the transmissions because that was actually a, a question I was thinking about um, for you guys, and because um, we were just talking on the first segment of the podcast about, I, I really felt that the Midwest would be a leader in renewables, um, whether it be solar or wind, and then combining that with really an upgrade to the transmission lines across the United States to really push that power out to the different coasts. And, and, the, and like you said, the big centers like a Chicago, um, what do you think needs to happen in regard to that I know some of that is coming from private investment, but do you guys, from what I can understand, are doing a lot of pushing the government and, and trying to get the government's involvement and government investment in there? Do you really think that that's going to be the, the key character to unlocking the transmission lines? And, and how far and, and how much are we away from what we would really need to be? Because when we see things now and we see like California, for example, and they're sagging transmission lines and, and they're being overloaded. Um, we had a guest last week on Alex Smith from Moxian, and he was talking about every single season, um, every summer, whenever the power's really being going um, high in California, that there's this pop-up 
uh, industry with generators. You see the, the diesel generators popping up all over the place. It, you have rolling blackouts. You have a, a massive, massive growing fire season there. And, and Moxie and his company is all about um, switching that and electrifying those generators. So where do you see the need for the transmission and how big of an obstacle is that going to be for the future of our country? Yeah, well, I mean, trans- transmission has been and will continue to be a huge obstacle in in renewable energy deployment going forward. Uh, and it's it's a really it's a tough nut to crack. And that's because you deal with, uh, I mean, by the very nature of transmission and, and it moving across state lines, you're dealing with state governments, local governments, counties in some states. Uh, then you've got the feds. Uh, you've also got obviously public and private interests that are associated with these lines. And so I, I think a, an easy point to show is that you can look at the recent New Hampshire transmission line that failed that was going to bring hydro in from Canada um, and then down in through the Northeast. Uh, that failed and, and was sort of a calamity of errors. And you look at um, the the various bedfellows that were arguing against it. You had environmental groups arguing against the transmission line because it was going through um, some uh, forested area, and there were concerns on that. Um, you had some renewable groups um, advocating against it because they didn't necessarily want the increased hydro coming in. It wasn't their particular renewables that were going to be able to inject uh, electrons onto this line. Um, and then uh, even all the way down to the way the question was worded, it was sort of this backwardly worded question on a um, uh, a referendum in New Hampshire, which is also a weird political choice to do it as a referendum Mm -hmm. um, and not run it through like a regulatory commission. But you have a referendum that says, you know, it was a, it was backwards in the way it was worded uh, saying, you know, do you not support transmission? You know? And so like it's, and it was a yes or no. And so it was um, a sort of a calamity of errors that, that ended up in, in that transmission line, not being able to go through. And that's in a relatively environmentally conscious part of the country. And so you can imagine in other states that may um, be have have different priorities than um, putting in uh, deploying renewable energy, uh, that these errors uh, or these these difficulties grow. So, I think that building transmission is is something that you need coherency across so many different sectors of government and private uh, capital that. It's really difficult. There's a reason it hasn't been built. And that's why I think that although transmission is sort of this oftentimes, you know, brought out as this sort of silver bullet, my background, I know I'm biased, but I think distributed generation and the power that distributed generation has um, can really, uh, you know, hold uh, hold our progress or or keep our progress going rather um, while we're waiting for this transmission to get built. Yeah, can you dive into that a little bit more? Are you re- referencing your time at Duke Energy and your experience there? Yeah, yeah, and and just broadly in distributed generation, I think that for those that aren't in the energy industry, uh, you know, distributed generation are are relatively smaller, you know, outputs. You know, you you think of like a coal-fired power plant. This could have you know five different um, uh, components that are all running at like six hundred megawatts apiece, three thousand you know megawatts in a in a coal-fired power plant you know, distributed all the way down to, you know, five megawatt solar fields out. And so the power of distributed energy is is not in, you know, a single solar array, one megawatt solar array, but it's in the aggregate. And so now as you start to deploy large amounts of distributed energy, um, you and aggregate these together, you have, you know, 
things, uh, products like uh, virtual power plants. Um, and then you also have uh, the demand response capabilities of things that you have in your home. So your Nest, or if you have some sort of smart thermostat, or if you have quote unquote smart devices, you know, in one home, you uh, during a, a summer peak hour when electricity is scarce and very expensive, power is scarce and expensive, um, a single person turning off their uh, washer dryer or turning off their appliances may not mean a lot. But if you have the ability to call on a million people in a city to decrease their usage, now you have literally thousands of megawatts that you can shed if you need to, which, which um, you know, protects the grid and otherwise makes um, the life easier for the grid operators. So I think that uh, it's, it's a transmission distribution split in terms of what we need to do going forward, but I am very encouraged around the technology and the capabilities of the, of the distributed grid. And I noticed you mentioned coal in there and um, coming from from your background, I, I would have assumed that you guys would be pushing for the removal or the um, sliding away from coal in all aspects that you can. Uh, what technologies do you think in that distributed uh, network are you going to see continuing to pop up and take more and more of the share of coal? I'm guessing it's natural gas, solar you guys are promoting, wind. Um, is there anything like nuclear that you guys are involved with policies and, and helping there? Or what exactly are you guys promoting from your side of it? And what do you think is going to be the most beneficial for the grid in America? Yeah, well, I think it's it's going to take, you know, a portfolio of technologies to be able to decarbonize the grid. and each one of these technologies has their own benefits in terms of, you know, grid uh, capabilities um, and, and grid functioning. Uh, the, I mean, the grid as it stands right now, as I'm sure you guys are familiar with, there's a lot of um, built-in inertia and spinning machines provide this inertia as opposed to things like solar and wind, which are inverter-based that don't necessarily provide this inertia. And this inertia is important. It's, it's very technical um, for those that aren't familiar with the grid, but um, it's, it's an important component of the grid as it stands. There are some inverter forming grids and inverter forming grid technology or, or grid following, um, technologies that, um, that are popping up. But so all to say, I think that, um, from a climate standpoint, especially retiring coal as fast as possible should be key, should be, you know, number one on everyone's list. There's going to be some amount of natural gas. Um, this should be uh, combined with, you know, com um, CCS capture scrubbing technology. Um, there was a recent plant in Texas that just provided, I believe it was around 50 megawatts of natural gas with um, with carbon captures, like the first market deployment um, that we've seen with that technology. It's very encouraging. Um, Breakthroughs is a proponent of nuclear. I think that um, there is a facility that... Um, is going into Wyoming um, that was just proposed. That's actually a, 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 a new nuclear facility that will be a, a test project that is running on the site of an old coal plant. And so I think that, you know, alongside nukes, obviously offshore wind has a lot of um, attractive uh, characteristics given the high capacity factors relative even to onshore wind um, and then solar We'll play a part. So this is all to say we we advocate for a portfolio of all of these technologies. They're all going to play a role. They all have different pieces. 
Um, and at the end of the day, the number is zero in terms of emissions. And that's what we want. And whatever way is most efficient to get to zero is, um, you know, is the policies that we'll be advocating for. I completely agree with, with everything you said there. Um, my concern that I would see is a lot of policy decisions that need to be made. And a lot of those, those people that you would be making those policies uh, with are coming from coal countries, uh, coal country, so to speak. Um, and a lot of their constituents are voting them in the office because of coal and, and keeping that alive. So when it comes to policy decisions that are being made at the level, the federal level, um, do you see that changing over the next five, 10 years? And, and what decisions really do need to be made that are really going to be impactful for the industry? I, I always see, and you mentioned getting to zero, I see the number 2030 thrown out there. I see the number 2050. What do you see as the reasonable timeline in your guys' mind for everything that you see from the inside and working with Congress of where are we going to be at what is the best number? Is it 2050? Is it somewhere in between? And what is it going to take to actually get to that, that final finish line there? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. And I do want to address the first part of it with, you know, with coal country in these communities, coal and, and mining is, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a way of life. It's, you know, what these people have done for generations. And so it's not to be, you know, we often talk about retiring coal, and obviously we do need to retire it. But when you talk about it, it sort of abstracts it from the material differences that these people are going to feel in these communities. And that's why we are big advocates for a just transition and finding a way, whether it's whether it's monies for job trainings for these facilities or these communities, um, whether it's ways that, um, you know, different sort of energy sources that are relatively similar, you know, geothermal, this takes, you know, uh, large scale geothermal plants, um, take fewer people and it's obviously not mining, but it's, um, it's a similar technology spread. Uh, we need to, to make sure that these people aren't left behind in the transition to, to energy, uh, to, to, to cleaner energy sources. So, um, it is difficult because obviously they're voting for their own self-interest and then the per- people that they vote for go to Washington and vote on the behalf of their constituents. And so, uh, that's the great thing about democracy. It's also the really frustrating thing about democracy is you have to find a way to say, okay, we're, you know, the, the policies we're advocating for are going to literally change your life and the life that your family has had for generations. How do we do that in a way that, you know, we can all agree on it? That, that is just, you know, on its face, sort of uh, a, a crazy yeah. question, but it's, it's one of the fundamental ones we're dealing with right now. I think that, um, Something, uh, if, if there was ever akin to a single policy that I would say could do an incredible amount of good if it was enacted is, um, pricing the externality, pricing carbon, clear market signals are, um, an incredible tool to be able to help decarbonize. I think, um, as you asked, like what, you know, what could be done from a high level? If we could find some way to price carbon, whether that's, um, whether that is a, a literal carbon price, a carbon tax or carbon fee, or whether that's something um, like a carbon border uh, adjustment mechanism. So we're now taking into account the fact that steel produced in the United States has much lower carbon than steel produced somewhere like China and adjusting for that um, so that we get, uh, you know, we drive uh, global markets to uh, decrease the amount of carbon that they're putting into materials. I think, you know, when can we get to net zero? I want to say, you know, with concerted efforts and people all on board, you know, 2050 would be, uh, would be incredible, but 
knowing the arc of these things, knowing the the difficulty associated with that. I don't know if that will happen, but that's you know that's what we're pushing for zero by twenty fifty. Yeah, I really think that the um, the large car manufacturers, and, and I know that's just one part of, of what we're talking about here, but when, when you have GM coming out and saying that they're going to move their entire offering to EVs, I believe by 2030, it was their number. And then you have Ford coming out and increasing their F-150 um, before it's even uh, out there in, in full production and available to the public. They've already increased their numbers of what they're planning to manufacture there. I think that's a really good sign when it comes to us moving to electrifying everything. Um, it also is interesting in the sense that that's a, that's a big fleet to flip from fossil fuels to electric vehicles. And we had a, a guest on uh, Jeff Springer in a past episode where he had talked about um, the real challenge for utilities is going to be when we flip the transit fleet, the semi fleet, where each one of those semis, he, I believe he put a number up there, potentially a, a thousand kilowatts when they hook up to a fast charger to, to refuel, so to speak. And then if you imagine 10 of those pulling into a station and you're at a megawatt of power and then push that across the entire country, that is, that is really where we start to get into some big power requirements and a modern infrastructure, so to speak. Um, where are you guys at in, in your thoughts for electric vehicles and, and how important that plays a role in what you guys are doing? And also, what are some of the obstacles for adoption of utilities for not just electric vehicles, but really getting um, renewable technologies integrated more and more into what they're actually, as far as their power generation? Is it a policy thing? Is it a technology aspect? Or is it a mixture of everything there? That's a great question. I think that, you know, in looking at electrifying the the transportation sector, you have sort of multiple different striations within that, like passenger vehicles. Electricity seems to be the best way to do it. And and this is borne out, like you said, by a lot of the major car companies coming out. Uh, one difficult thing or one thing to consider always is that the average, you know, lifetime of a car on the road is 12 years. So, yes, all new cars in 2030 by you know a lot of these um, vehicle manufacturers will be electric so each new one sold but you know depending on when you buy you know if you buy your latest ice vehicle in 2029 you now that is on the road then you know till till 2041 um and depending on how many via millions of vehicles they sell a year so there's you know there's a legacy of vehicles that are on the road and so it's very encouraging to see new vehicles be electric and that's something that has to happen going forward but finding a way to do you know, under the, uh, I believe it was the Obama administration, there was this cash for clunkers, finding like a, a way to do, you know, trade in your ICE vehicle to get an, an EV or some credit, I think would be a, a, a great policy going forward. Uh, and then outside of passenger vehicles, as you get into heavy duty vehicles, um, batteries, just the, the weight of the batteries and the necessary battery power that you would need makes those vehicles, batteries and electrification potentially not, um, as as a current as the technology currently stands, not the you know most efficient path path forward, and that's where you've got things like um, hydrogen coming into play that could uh, in fuel cells that could potentially add some benefit there. From the utility perspective, I think it really comes down to um, like so many things. Uh, one, utilities earn a rate of return on the depreciation of capital assets. So, do they get to build the charging stations? Do they get to build the infrastructure associated with electric vehicle build out? If they do, they'll be very happy with that. That's a regulatory battle in terms of if they can put that into their capital plans, 
Um, if they don't, if they have to, you know, share the charging areas with uh, other groups like Tesla coming in or ChargePoint coming in, um, how, uh, what sort of rates do they get to use on these? Because obviously the, depending on what time of day you want to charge your EV, uh, like you said, you know, imagine a five o'clock EV rush at a, you know, new age gas station where you have 15 vehicles plugging in, uh, all, all pulling power. And then you have that times however many charging stations there are across a state, across a country. I mean, the amount of power that will be needed and the amount of control software that'll need to be able to, um, keep the grid safe, reliable and, and consistent, um, is, is incredible. But luckily, um, there's a bunch of smart people working on that. So I've all to say from the utility perspective, it comes down to, I think, regulatorily, um, are they going to be able to earn a rate of return on these assets? And, and if they can't, if they, you know, are not building these capital assets, how do they structure rates, um, to most, uh, benefit shareholders in, in terms of obviously publicly owned utilities? Now municipalities obviously are a little different. You mentioned a regulatory battle with the utilities on uh, being able to build those charging stations out. Where do you see that? Uh, what side do you see that landing on? Do you see that landing on the, the Tesla and the privatization build out the charge point and more of a, say, a cooperative vision of it? Or do you see that the utilities will win out in a lot of different states and, and areas and, and have that monopoly on that? It's tough. Utility regulation across the United States is so varied um, based off of, um, you know, if the regulatory commission that your uh, these arguments are being made uh, in front of is appointed, if they're political appointees, if they're voted in, um, and then, you know, the relationship that the utility has historically with these areas. Um, and so I think that uh, if, if I had to guess, I think in, in most areas, I think you'll see uh, you'll see some utility infrastructure being um, being deployed. I think that there's definitely a case for the utilities to make um, to ensure that areas, uh, low-income areas, get charging stations and are equitably treated as opposed to, you know, you look at a lot of the Tesla charging right now um, and it's in areas where people have electric vehicles. As of right now, people who have electric vehicles, you know, are uh, are in disproportionately high-income areas because they're more expensive, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think that there is a play for utilities to say, listen, we'll deploy the capital to make sure that the transition from ICE to EV is as equitable as possible. And then we'll let, you know, the market go where it may in terms of where these private actors would like to bring it in. So I think if utilities are, have a little bit of a forethought and are thinking about, you know, how this, how, how they can, um, how they can benefit not only themselves, but the community, the specific communities they serve going forward. I think there's a place for them um, if they decide to do that. And if the regulatory commissions decide to approve their their capital deployment plans, you know, that's that's a completely, um, completely separate uh, question. Yeah, 100 percent. I know we're running a little tight on time. Do you have uh, a few minutes for a couple more questions? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I kind of wanted to ask you a little bit about your thoughts on government's role in all of this, because you're really heavily involved in, in policy. And um, we've seen a ton of innovation from private uh, companies, whether it's Tesla and their supercharger network, their EVs, and really pushing that in there. And I know government assisted them with subsidies and different things there in the early days. 
Where do you see government's role when it comes to the actual modernization of the grid and some of these different challenges that you guys are working on versus the private role? Do you think it's going to heavily lean on government to really facilitate the largest changes? Or do you think a lot of this is going to come from the private side? Uh, I think, you know, both. I, I think there are certain issues, uh, like previously talked about, like transmission, where this is, it's just such a large issue. There are so many players that um, government will need to take a driving role in getting transmission cited across the United States. Uh, but then you look at, you know, renewable energy deployment. Uh, yeah, there have been investment tax credits and subsidies that have been given to renewable energy. But then the private sector in large has taken that and driven down energy prices. So I think in, you know, in the ideal world, you're creating a policy that, that, you know, one affects the sort of the goal of, of whatever you're looking to do. So in this case, it's, you know, decarbonizing the grid or deploying renewable energy. And then once you've, uh, the ideal policy is one that which you set it, you know, it, it allows private industry to accomplish that goal in the most efficient way possible. So I think that depending on what level of government you're looking at, whether this is federal, state, or local, as long as, you know, you're matching a policy to an outcome and then allowing, you know, private capital to, to flow in and achieve that outcome, you've got, you know, the, that's the ideal working relationship, um, between public and private, uh, or the government and, and the private sector. And I think that there is also from a finance perspective with some of these early technologies, there's a huge um, place for uh, public institutions to act as like a credit backstop for technology. So saying, you know, this technology, maybe it's too risky for some private capital, but the government coming in and saying, hey, we'll provide a, a credit backstop for this. Um, and and that you know, de-risks some of these uh, early on climate technologies. That makes a lot of sense to me. So where would you urge people to, to start with some of this um, whether it's a business, whether it's uh, an agency or it's a private person, do you think, where, where do they start? Do they start locally and, and trying to push their local community to, to move towards some of these in- initiatives? Or what is the process that you would recommend people to really get out there and start? Should they reach out to an organization like yourselves and, or go to uh, even like the climate uh, the climate project or, or what exactly would you push someone in if they ask you, Hey, I want to, I want to help more. I want to be part of this change. Wh- what direction would you push them in? Yeah. I mean, the, the climate reality project is a great organization, um, educational organization in terms of sort of, if you don't have a background in climate or you don't have a background in energy, they really do offer a wide variety of, uh, informational campaigns that, you know, can catch you up to speed on the information side of it. I would say uh, I am a huge proponent personally of, you know, your uh, looking at your own personal habits um, and then and seeing how you can sort of inflict the change you want, um, not only within your own household, but also locally. I think that, you know, the area that you live in, you're seeing um, material effects right away. For instance, uh, if you shut down or if you help uh, retire early a coal fired power plant, there are literal air quality benefits that you and your community are going to see instantaneously. Um, And uh, federal, you know, pushing, writing to your senators, writing to your congressmen and your congresswomen is effective. But I think also working at the local level allows you to see that change. And that's a little more encouraging than, 
you know, the slow push up the, up the hill that is, you know, to getting anything done in, in Washington. So I would say, you know, look at things you can do inside your own home. Um, things like getting a smart thermostat or, um, you know, looking at your utility rates, just understanding how you're getting charged for the energy you're using. And then whatever you would like to do, if you're interested in limiting your energy use, look into energy efficiency upgrades and then find how potentially you could uh, spur that, whether that's going to your city council, whether that's going to your mayor and seeing if there's ways um, that you can increase the amount of maybe rooftop solar in your community. Maybe your city would be willing to spend some monies to make sure that all government buildings have solar on top of their roofs. That's, you know, a, a sort of blunt example. But um, all to say, start local. That's where you you personally are going to see material benefits. Reach out to educational um, edu- educational groups like the Climate Reality Project, amongst others. Um, and then build up from there. Because I think one common pitfall I see is people look at Washington as sort of the bellwether of how difficult it is to get climate and energy policy passed, and they get very discouraged very quickly. Um, you can you can have much more success, I think, at the local level, um, and that's the place to start. I have one last question for you, and the way I was thinking of wording it, I don't, I don't know if it's an answerable question, so I'll, I'll put it in a time frame. So the question would be is what do you think is the biggest challenge in front of us? And, and I'd like to just put in, in the next 10 years, because I don't know if you can answer that first question. It's just so such a large challenging question, but what do you think the biggest challenge in front of all of us uh, when it comes to our grid and, and moving towards the, these newer technologies is really for, going to be over the next 10 years. And, and also what's going to make the biggest difference for America if we were to actually meet that challenge. That, that's a big question, but I, I think, you know, over the next 10 years, the deployment of low carbon technologies is so key. And this is across the entirety of the energy sector. This is deploying uh, electrolyzers to get more green hydrogen. This is deploying renewable energy. Um, this is uh, deploying retrofits on current natural gas plants with carbon capture sequestration. This is deploying direct air capture to suck the carbon out of the air and then store it underground um, to directly uh, decrease emissions. And so the money and the requisite infrastructure associated with the deployment of all these technologies is huge. Luckily, more there's never been a better time to be in clean tech. Money is flying into this space in terms of investors see the benefits long-term. Energy Impact Partners out of New York just raised a a billion dollar fund, a billion dollar climate fund to be able to deploy some of these technologies. So the money is there. We need to find the right, um, you know, the right percentage of the right uh, relationship between how this private capital can get to the most efficient place, how it can be spread over um, a number of technologies to make sure that we're not putting all our eggs in one basket. So from just the next 10 years, I think um, deployment is a deployment of all the technologies that we have currently available because that's one thing i think that gets lost is people think that there's this um we need this technology that's somewhere off in the future that we haven't developed yet we can decarbonize with everything we have right now it just needs to be deployed um and so uh the you know the bills that are going through congress right now are a great first step in being able to get get monies um to be able to deploy some of these technologies but the next 10 years are are really going to be crucial 
I think mentioning that, you know, the technology is here, it's just a matter of the willpower. I mean, I think that that point really sends us home and we know what we have to do. We just have to get the willpower to do it. So, well, hey, Jack, well, thank you so much. I know we ran a little over here on time, but appreciate your time. Any last words that you'd want to say before we let you go? Uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. This is um, this has been really fun. I uh, I talk, you know, energy policy all the time, twenty four seven. So I'm really glad to to be able to hop on. Um, thanks for reaching out for this. Uh, yeah, and love the podcast. Listen to the 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 uh, library of them, and it was great. Thanks, Jack. And and where can people find you? Where 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 should we send them to if they want to read a little bit about what you guys are doing or understand a little bit more? Should should they go to uh, uh, your company now, uh, Breakthrough Energy, go to the website and check you guys out there, or, or where do you want them to come find you? Yeah, uh, yeah, Breakthrough Energy's uh, website. Um, if you want to to reach out to me um, via email, it's jack at breakthroughenergy.org. Um, you can search my uh, my just my Twitter is like Jack Andreasen or something like that. You can reach out to me on there. Uh, but yeah, if uh, anybody who wants to talk, um, we're here to listen. Breakthroughs. Uh, um, a great organization and um yeah be happy to talk well we look forward to having you back on again i think there's a lot more we could we could talk about um so excited to have you back on on a future episode and thanks again for your time jack absolutely thanks y'all have a good day we hope you can join us next time and in the meantime if you have any questions for the battery blarney duo or anything else you want us to discuss in next week's episode please email us at info at eepowersolutions.com Thanks again for listening. Talk to you then.